Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's open up the word of prayer again. Jesus, help us to know that we are in your presence when your word is looked at, read, preached, thought on. Send your spirit to give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear. For apart from that, we, we have no hope of hearing you. We pray this in your beautiful and matchless name. Amen. I remember hearing a story a long time ago from an American pastor uh, who I think spent time in India, uh, some kind of short-term missions trip. And there was an Indian pastor that he partnered with when he was in India. Um, And uh, this Indian pastor was speaking at a Christian conference in India. And so the American pastor went to support his friend and and just be part of the Christian conference. And um, his friend was, again, one of the speakers there. And uh, when his friend's time to speak was, was up or, 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 or came, one of the conference organizers gave an introduction to this Indian pastor, as you usually do at a conference. And the American pastor is both confused and honestly a little offended by the introduction. Because the whole introduction was about this speaker's father, who was also a pastor, and, and kind of talking about his strengths and the way he ministered so faithfully and all the accomplishments he had. He even mentioned the speaker's grandfather, and then at the very end, there was just a sentence or two about the actual speaker, and they invited him to speak. And the American pastor was kind of offended on behalf of his his friend. He felt like he was being slighted, like talking about his parents and his grandparents, but and then here's 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 the, the kid. Uh, and so he after the conference he asked his Indian pastor friend, like, what was the deal with that introduction? And, uh, and his Indian pastor friend said, well, in, in our country, where you came from, who your parents are, is deeply important, is just as important to who you are as what you've done. And so that was how they honored me, by sharing who my parents were and, and, and what they had done and my grandparents. And in fact, for them to introduce me, where I came from was just as relevant and just as important as anything that I had done. Now that has stuck with me for the obvious reason, at least in my experience, that that is diametrically different to how we are in America. In America, we take pride in the fact that it doesn't matter who your parents were. You're going to be judged based on you and what you have done. And in fact, if, if anything, we're trying to, you know, get away from the shadow of our parents' reputation or whatever. And it's part of the mythos of our country. We were built by immigrants fleeing their home country, coming to America for the specific reason that it didn't matter in America who your dad or mom was, what their vocation was. You could be anything in America as long as you worked hard enough and and all that stuff. Now, sociologists and anthropologists will will talk about 
You got collectivist societies, individualist societies. So America is an individualist society, which that means that we put a greater emphasis on the individual, often at the expense of the group. It is more important that the individual does well, even if that hurts the group harmony and the group's unity. India is a collectivist society, which means the emphasis is on the group. And so the, the, you know, the important thing is that the group does well, even if that harms the individual. There are strengths and weaknesses in both cultures. I'm not interested in comparing and contrasting. My point is, it's helpful for us to just understand how we lean. That we just, by our DNA, by living in this American country, are, are, are by default very individualistic. And the reason why it's helpful for us to just be aware of that is that our cultural assumptions will inevitably impact how we understand our discipleship, how we understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. And if we read the Bible seriously, and we take the words of Jesus seriously, what we find is that Jesus at times confronts some of the sources of our hyper-individualism. Because Jesus Christ didn't come to help us live our best lives now and go do our own individual thing. But Jesus came to lay down his life to start a community, to redeem a community of people who'd be transformed by the grace of God and then would live out their discipleship and their obedience together. That is why he came, and that community he came to form is what we call the church. And yes, too often the church has failed to be what Jesus called it to be. It's failed to be the community that reflects its Lord. But it still remains the goal of our Lord, that this is why he came, that we would live out our discipleship and obedience together. So I'm in my last sermon in the sermon series of spiritual, awake, or, uh, spiritual renewal. sorry, and, um, and so I want to look at how does spiritual renewal pertain to what does it look like to be a community? Obviously, spiritual renewal has a personal element. Uh, we can only experience renewal when we each ourselves experience the grace of God in a new way and are refreshed by it. But what I think we see in the Bible is that God is not as concerned that we each individually be renewed, but that we would together, as a church body, experience spiritual renewal. And so I'm going to be doing a slightly different kind of sermon than we normally do. Normally we, we preach through, this whole series has been different, so thank you for bearing with it. It was just trying something new. But normally we preach through books of the Bible, and so there's a certain text that we're going to camp on, and we're going to spend our time there, we're going to try to understand it, apply it. But what I'm going to try to do this morning is trace a theme through the Bible to try to show this is God's intent throughout the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at different passages. I'm, I'm trying not to include so much detail as to overwhelm you, but to give enough so you can really see the scope and the sweep of God's plan for, for creation and what he wants for us and how to live out our faith again in community. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell you, I find the vision that we see in the Bible to be breathtaking and beautiful and compelling. And it's something that I long for in a very deep part of my being. And so my hope is that God will use my, my very inadequate abilities and efforts to, to maybe lead us as a church towards that as well. So our outline for us this morning is first point, God's communal design and redemption. Second point is Jesus' communal mission. And then the last point is application for spiritual renewal. So first point, God's communal design and redemption. In this first point, I'm going to draw out two biblical principles that are going to be the foundation for what I'm going to try to convince us of this morning. 
And this first biblical principle is that God made us as people who need other people. When he created us, he made us for relationship. He built us for community as part of our genetic DNA. And the place that we see this, most obviously, is in how it all began in Genesis 1 and 2. This is the creation narrative where we see how God made the world, what he made for us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip over to Genesis 1 and 2. We're not going to read all of it. But it's helpful just to look at it and have it open in front of you. It'll just make it easier to follow along. But this first biblical principle, God made us as people who need other people. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God created the world, and he made it a masterpiece. And he communicates this in a very specific way. There's six days that he creates it in, and each day he creates a different part of the universe. And he punctuates it each time with this one phrase, and God saw what he had made, and, and, it, and he saw that it was good. And he says it six different times, not because, you know, Moses or whoever wrote it is forgetting that he wrote it the first time, but to give emphasis that everything God is making in this, in this earth is good. The skies are good. The land is good. The ocean is good. The animal kingdom is good. It's a beautiful creation that God has made for us. But then in chapter 2, a, a more discordant note is sounded. So chapter 1 in Genesis is this overview in chapter 2, he zooms in on how Adam and Eve, or the first humans, are made. And in this, we get a discordant note. Adam has been created. He's, he, has, he has a job to do that's very fulfilling. I mean, he's, created, he's, he's categorizing the animal kingdom. He's doing the first scientific endeavors. He's literally in paradise, guys. If you've been on a nice honeymoon or a nice vacation, it didn't compare to the Garden of Eden. There was no sickness. There was no pain. And he walked with God. And yet there's this discordant note in Genesis 2.18 where it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Again, all of Genesis 1, it's, And God saw, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then all of a sudden, ah, but it's not good. And so God created Eve. Now, obviously, he's talking first and foremost about marriage. And here we see God's design for marriage. But there's a broader point that's being made. You've got to picture what Adam is doing is he's, he's, he's scientifically categorizing all the animals. That's what it means to name the animals. And he's saying, oh, here's a dog. Dogs are great. They're kind. They're wonderful. But you know what? It's not like me. It doesn't really give me community. Oh, here's a giraffe. Giraffes are wonderful. They're great. They're interesting. But it's not like me. He's looking for someone like him. That's what he needs for companionship. And so God creates him a human. That's the point. Here's, so, so, so get this. Adam is literally in paradise. He's walking with God, and there's, because he doesn't have relationship, he doesn't have community, it ultimately wasn't good. You could be in the most perfect circumstances. Everything that frustrates you about life could go away. Everything you want in life, you could have. But if you were alone, if you didn't have a relationship, it wouldn't be good. And the reason is because that is how God designed us. This isn't just a Christian thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's every person. We were designed and built for community and for relationships. And humans throughout history have, have noted this fact, everything from Aristotle, who said we are communal animals, to the Beatles singing that we get by with a little bit of help from our friends. We've just intuited this, that we need people. And during Christmas season, it's appropriate to use a Christmas movie analogy. I think this explains the enduring appeal of It's a Wonderful Life. If you're not familiar with this Christmas classic, it's a story of a man named George Bailey, grows up in rural upstate New York. He's talented, ambitious, 
And the only thing he wants in life is to shake the dust of that crummy little town off his feet and go to college and become an architect and build great things and do great things and see great things. And through a series of unfortunate events, he gets stuck in this small hometown. And he, and he spends his life working in this building alone, helping some of the poorest in his community. And he feels like a failure because he hasn't done any of the things he thought he was going to do in his life. And he has a wife and kids and he needs support now. And he comes to a crisis, which brings him to a moment of clarity at the end of the movie, and he's surrounded by his friends and his family, and he sees the love they have for him, and he, and he sees the love that he has for them. And he comes to this moment of clarity, which is voiced by the angel Clarence, who says, no man is a failure who has friends. Now, Hollywood can, be, can get it wrong sometimes, but man, they got it right there. Communicating something profound about what it means to be human. And that when it comes to our purpose and, and meaning of our life, the relationships that we will be in, the relationships that we are in now are far more important to us than anything we will ever accomplish in our vocation, in our hobbies, in our goals, whatever it may be. No man is a failure has friends. And the reason is because God designed us for relationships. Again, that's the first biblical principle. God created us as people who need other people. Genesis 1 and 2. But then we get to Genesis 3. And this is when sin enters the picture. And what sin does is it takes what God created together and it tears it apart. Um, You see Adam and Eve who are created to be unified in community torn apart. They're accusing one another. It's your fault, your fault, your fault. Again, it's not just showing marital discord. It's showing how humans turn on each other. Uh, Creation, which was created to be a garden of paradise, tears itself apart. We have tornadoes and famine and hurricanes. And of course, the greatest separation is when Adam and Eve are separated from God. All of the Bible, from chapter, from Genesis 3 onward, is God answering this problem of sin and separation. All of it. That, that's what it's doing. It's answering, how is God going to address how sin has shattered and separated Everything. And this is what brings us to our second biblical principle. Again, the first biblical principle is that God created us as people who need other people, but the second biblical principle is that his plan of salvation is to redeem a community of people. So just as his original intent was that we would be people who need relationships, who live in relationships, so now his plan of salvation is to redeem a community of people. And we see this in Genesis 12. After Genesis 3, there's just chaos in the Bible. You got the, the flood and Noah, then you got the Tower of Babel. You got these lists of so-and-so lived X amount of years and then died, and this person died, and death is in the picture where it wasn't before. It's just chaos. And then God begins his answer to the problem of sin in, in Genesis 12 when he calls this man Abram, who you probably know as Abraham. And in Genesis 12, he calls out to Abram. This is what he says. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. This is going to make you a great nation. God's intention from the beginning, his, his, the beginning of how he was going to answer the problem of sin, was to create a community of people. And so he calls Abraham, and this community of people he's going to make Abraham into is going to, in the end, be a blessing to all the families on the earth. 
And this is continued then later, 400 years later, when Israel's in slavery in Egypt and God delivers them. Again, he clarifies, my goal is to make a community. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And again, this is God speaking to Israel as they're in, in slavery. Therefore, say to the people of Israel while they're in slavery, I am the Lord, and I will free you from your oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment, and I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. Again, God's goal with delivering Israel was so that they would be a people, a community who are specifically God's people, that they would reflect the grace that God had shown them and how they live, and through that, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's creation design was to create people who are relational, but his redemptive design is to also create a community of people. And this is a very clear message of the Old Testament. The whole Testament is God dealing with a community, Israel caring for them, leading them, instructing them. But this brings us to an obvious question. Well, that was the Old Testament. We're New Testament believers. This, you know, Jesus came. Doesn't that change everything, right? Like in Jesus, we have access through his death to God. We don't need a priest. We don't need to go through a church. We can be in our bedroom by ourselves and because the blood of Christ covers us, like, hasn't things changed? In other words, did the coming of Jesus change God's plan to create a community? This brings us to our second point, and the short answer is no, by the way. And let me argue that for you. This is the second point, Jesus' communal mission. So again, first two principles, God created us uh, as relational people, and, and in the same way, his, his plan for salvation is not to save us to go live our individual lives, but to save us as a community, to be a community with live out our discipleship and obedience together. And this continues in Jesus' coming, in Jesus' communal mission. And we'll get two passages here that show the beginning of Jesus' mission and then show the end, not the end of his ministry, but where everything is moving, the end of everything. So first, Matthew 4, 17. Here we have Jesus. His birth narrative is over. He's gone through his temptation. And he's beginning his public ministry. He's beginning his public preaching ministry. And Matthew summarizes it like this in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. And if you know it, don't say it. But I want to I just do a, a thought experiment as Protestant evangelicals who are very American what do we expect Jesus to say? What do we normally say? Repent and ask Jesus into your heart. Or repent and make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. Or repent and read your Bible more. Or repent and watch the chosen. Something you're supposed to do on your own, but that's not at all what Jesus says. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This community that God's intent was to create, he's saying it's now come, and it's come in the person of Jesus. And so the invitation isn't repent and make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, whatever that might mean. I have no idea, to be honest. It's repent and join the kingdom that Christ is bringing. Join the community of which Christ is Lord. Become part of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is preaching. And all of Jesus' earthly ministry reflects this. 
Jesus didn't minister by locking himself in a library and reading books and writing books. He was always surrounded by people. He was always creating a community around him. He was investing in his 12 apostles because they were going to be the leaders of his community. All his preaching, all his healing, it was done in public. And in fact, the few times when he is isolated by himself to pray, it's mentioned because it's exceptional. Otherwise, he's surrounded by people because he's continuing God's plan of salvation to create a community of people who will live out their obedience and discipleship to Jesus together. And of course, as soon as Jesus fulfills what he came to do. He dies on a cross. He raises back to life and he sends into heaven. As soon as that happens, the followers of Jesus form that community. The first revival in the history of the Christian church happens in Acts 2 and the automatic response is Christians get together. And that was a passage that Chris read showing that beautiful community that just happens organically when God's spirit begins to move in the hearts of his people. Because again, God's redemptive design was to create a community of people. That's how it begins, but let's also look at how it all ends. If the beginning of Jesus' ministry begins with this emphasis on a kingdom, on a community, well, how is everything going to end in life? We see this in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10, which is really showing us what heaven looks like. And after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, And they were clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Where is everything going? It's going towards a great eternal community of people who are together because they worship the same Lord, who are coming from every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, background, socioeconomic status. Because that's God's That was his creation design. That's the plan for salvation. It's true in the Old Testament, and it remains true in the New Testament. So that's the heavy lifting for us this morning. Now I want to say, what does this have to say about renewal? And this brings us to our third point, which is the application for spiritual renewal. And I have three for us. If God created us for community, And if Jesus redeemed us to be part of a specific kind of community, which is the church, then spiritual renewal is most effective when it happens within Christian community. Renewal will will be the most effective, the most long-lasting, the most full, when it happens not with us by ourselves in our bedroom, but when it happens with us in community with other Christians. And more broadly, discipleship will always struggle if we try to do it alone, without the benefit of Christian community, without the benefit of the church. And I think this is, you know, in, in my limited experience, this is what I've experienced. Um, it is really hard to do this Christian thing on our own. And there's reasons for that. There's a Christian counselor named Richard Plass. He wrote a book called The Relational Soul. And he argued, just like what I've been trying to argue, that God created us for relationships as part of our genetic design. But he also argues that we're also created by relationships, which means our personalities Who we are as persons is deeply formed by the relationships we engage in for good or for bad. What does that mean? That means we're most hurt through relationships. The wounds we carry in our souls are not from, you know, striking our our shin on a rock, but it's from people and relationships we've been in. 
At the same time, the most healing thing we can be in is relationships as well. That's why someone who's been belittled and picked on their whole life and suffers from crippling insecurity, they may read in a book somewhere that God, through Jesus Christ, delights in them as a father. And therefore, it shouldn't matter what anyone else thinks. But it doesn't, that idea by itself doesn't free them from their crippling insecurity. Why is that? It's because that crippling insecurity was formed in relationship. And the only place it can be undone is, again, through relationship with people. This is what Richard Plass says in this book. He says, The greatest gift any of us can give another is a transforming, receptive presence. It means to, to, to just be present and receive someone and welcome them and allow them be who they are. This transforming. What will bear fruit and be remembered no matter who we are or what we do is a presence that bears the receptive presence of Jesus. And the reason why community makes spiritual renewal more effective is that we cannot be a transforming, receptive presence to ourselves. Only someone else can be a receptive presence to us. And that happens within community. It happens within the church, with our brothers and sisters. And so if you're not living in Christian community, we're, we're missing one of the deepest blessings of renewal that Jesus has given us. Now I want to make a quick caveat here because I've been using the word Christian community and church interchangeably, and you're like, hey man, I don't know if those are the same thing. Um, For instance, could a Bible study be your Christian community? Why do you need a church? If you're in a Bible study, you're you're reading God's word, you're in relationship, like, why do we need this thing called the church? And this is my plug for a Sunday school series I'm doing in February. It's going to be a three-part series, and we're going to answer these questions and look at what is the church, why is it a beautiful thing, why is it so crucial for the Christian, and what does it look like for us to be a church? And so I was going to start the first Sunday in February at 9.30, and I'm going to have a lot more time to get into what that looks like. I don't have time to do it this morning. I'm just going to make this one really short response, and I'm not going to have time to back it up. I'm just going to say this. If a Christian is in a Bible study instead of a church, best case scenario, yes, that Bible study is their church. It's functioning as their church. The only problem is that it's probably not a very good church. Because the church is called to be far more than an informal Bible study. It's called to do far more, to, to have far more. And so, so think about it like this. Yes, it may be technically possible to split wood with a butter knife. But why would you want to do that if there's an axe right next to you? Yes, I mean, there's, there are places in the world where Christianity is illegal, and there's 10 Christians in a city, and so their church looks like a Bible study. A very intense, committed Bible study, by the way. But if you ask them, hey, would you, would you rather be in a place where you can gather with 100 people, where there's a variety of gifts present, where there's pastors, where there's... I'm, yeah, they would say yes. So again, like, yeah, it's, it's, technically a Bible study could be a church, but it's not going to be a very good church. So if you find issue with that, come to the Sunday school, and I can argue that a little bit more fully. That's just, that's all I got for that. Okay, second application. Again, if God created us for community, and if Jesus redeemed us to be part of a specific kind of community, which is the church, then we won't be able to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave us apart from the church. Jesus gave us a mission at the end of Matthew, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, if Jesus' plan is for us to be a community, we're not going to be able to fulfill what he's called us to do apart from a community. 
We're not going to be able to grow into mature disciples ourselves apart from the community. You know, for every preacher who gets fired up about these ideas and be a little bit too fired up sometimes, like we need a more diplomatic leader like Sean to give some balance. And we need administrators like Chandler to put wheels on it and get things done. And we need the compassion and care of someone like Mickey. And we need the wisdom of a Betty and, and, a, and, a, and a Brenda and a Pat and a Maple and a Jenny and a Joe. And we need, the, you know, we need the energy and the enthusiasm of our young people. And we need the financial resources of everybody because we're a poor church. Like, we need the diversity of everyone's gifts and personalities and backgrounds. Not only is that a blessing to everyone here when you bring that, but it's necessary for us to grow into maturity as a Christian community. We can't fulfill the, the command to be disciples apart from the full variety and diversity of even a small church like ours. But second, we also can't make disciples very well apart from the church. We can't share the gospel effectively apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because when someone turns in faith to Christ, that is a supernatural event that no amount of winsomeness or intellect or ability can do. Only God can do it. And so we need our brothers and sisters praying for us, hey, Pray for my neighbors, pray for my coworkers, pray for my family who doesn't know Jesus. Pray that God is working. And then second, we also need the encouragement and the accountability from being around people who are being obedient to the Great Commission. Because if you're anything like me, if you try to fulfill the Great Commission, if you try to share Jesus with your friends on your own, like maybe you'll get fired up and you'll do it for about a week and you'll share the gospel a couple times, but it's discouraging and it's hard and pretty soon, you're like, well, I'm busy, I don't have time for this, and we rationalize why we don't need to do it, and before you know it, it's been six months or a year, and you haven't shared the gospel with a single person. When we started going out into this neighborhood once a month to meet our neighbors and share, the, share Jesus with them, what I found most formative and impactful for me was not just the conversations, which there's so many just honest, beautiful, wonderful conversations but it was doing this with other Christians. It was going out with one or two others and seeing them do it. Because here's a, here's a truth. When I see a Christian share Jesus fearlessly, it makes me a little less fearful to do so myself. And when I see another Christian just share the good news, which is the best news in the world, and do it with joy, just loving someone in the neighborhood through, the, through what they're sharing, like, it, it makes me more joyful to share the gospel too. For us to be able to fulfill our mission, we need the church. We need the Christian community that Jesus Christ himself has formed. And lastly, and this is just summing it all up real briefly, if God created us for community and if Jesus redeemed us to be part of a specific kind of community, which is the church, then we can only seek renewal together. Again, if, if, you know, if, if, if we're just reading our Bibles by ourselves and trying to do this on our own, it's only going to go so far, but if we want to see the kingdom of God come in power, if we want to see the Spirit move, if we want to see people come to faith, we can only do it together. We can only seek renewal together, and we do that by praying together, do it by worshiping together on Sunday mornings like this, do it by serving together, sharing the gospel together, and living our lives together. That 
is what it looks like to seek renewal. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you will make us that community. I pray, Lord, I feel like I have done so little to communicate the beauty of what you want us to be and what we could be and what your spirit is moving us to be. Lord, may you make us a true family, a church that is formed because we've met Jesus and we love him and we, we want to be part of his kingdom. We want to see his kingdom advance. Help us to be a church that is quick to extend and receive forgiveness that is a community of grace that comes from having received the grace of God in Jesus first. May you make us that more and more, and we give you thanks for the ways that you've already made us that and the ways that you're already at work in our midst even now. But we just, we want to say we're not satisfied. And we want more because there's nothing better, Jesus, than you in this whole world. Nothing. And we love you so much. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.